All right, good morning. Again, my name is Nate, one of the pastors here. I've got the privilege of being able to open up God's Word and teach this morning. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. We're going to start in Jeremiah 17, verses 5 through 10. And if you've got one of our Bibles, it's on page 720. Page 720. And if you don't have a Bible at home or you need a new one, please feel free to take one of our Bibles as our gift to you. And so we've been walking through this sermon series on how people change, really trying to focus on, okay, what are the nuts and bolts of how we change? Because we all want to change. We all feel that we have to change. We want to be more like Christ, but we really struggle with how do we do that? And so this whole series is the nuts and bolts of how we change. And so the very first week we talked about, okay, Change is very possible because, and we looked at Second Peter, where it says that God has given us, by His power, everything that we need to be able to live godly lives. And so our hope to change comes from God. And then the second week, we talked about that the person who changes us is Jesus Christ, that, that change doesn't come simply from memorizing some principles or some system, but it it comes in having an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and the importance of that. And then last week we talked about that the context of change is community. And so the, the, the soil of change where we grow happens within the church. It, it, just like it takes an army to raise a child, it takes a church to raise a Christian. Now this week we are going to really start focusing on the process of change. And I want to give you the big picture of where we're going to be headed over the next several weeks, and then I want to talk specifically about how God uses heat or the trials in our lives to change us, to grow us. The Bible, it's full of metaphors, right? Pictures. Because metaphors are powerful tools to help us understand the things that are extremely complex. They give us a, a picture to grab hold of so that we can comprehend. Jesus uses pictures and metaphors all the time in his teaching. For example, instead of just telling his disciples, I love you, he turns to them and says, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He gives them a metaphor that would bring to mind a powerful image of a sacrificial and loving God. And so today, I want to share a metaphor with you that I hope will help make sense of life. It's a metaphor that when I first saw it and, and heard about it, it really helped explain to me why I do a lot of the things that I do. It's a metaphor that uh, I've used in previous sermons. It's a metaphor that's found in several places in the Bible, I've drawn it, I've drawn the diagram that we're going to see here in a little bit dozens of times as I've tried to counsel people through trials in their lives. Uh, in fact, the, the book, How People Change, which is the, where we're getting the title for this sermon series, the authors of that book spend over half the book dissecting this diagram that we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to spend the next four weeks digging into it ourselves on Sunday mornings in your missional communities. You're going to be working through this diagram for many weeks. And I would encourage it. And Dave said this 
the very first week of our MC starting to go through this curriculum of how people change, he said to all of us, look, you're only going to get out of this what you put into it. Right, Dave? And that is so true. So if you're not connected to a missional community, I would encourage you, maybe your job doesn't allow you to be part of a missional community right now because of your, your schedule, but you really want to dig into this. You recognize, okay, this is something I really need to understand. I've got extra workbooks and I can give you a link to the video series. And so just come see me afterwards. I would love to, to share those. You can buy one of the books from us and, and you can get the videos for free. But I would highly encourage you, spend time investing time into, into this study. I think is going to be really beneficial. And I want, I want to challenge you now, as we begin to talk, talk about the process of change, to, to think about something specific in your life right now that you recognize that you need change. And I'm not talking about your circumstances, okay? That, okay, I need my spouse to change. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about something in your own heart, your, your own attitudes, your, your own emotions or your own behavior that you recognize that you need change in. I want you to write it down. I want you to, I want you to journal and pr- start praying that God would help you with this change. I would encourage you to journal about how God is helping you. I would encourage you to talk to some. Maybe it's your one-to-one or somebody that you trust. Tell them. Tell somebody. This is where I feel like God needs to make a change in my own heart and ask them to keep you accountable. Again, what you put into this is what you're going to get out of it. And so, Jeremiah 17 verses 5 through 10, is a really good place in Scripture that describes this metaphor. And so let's pray, and then we're going to walk through this passage. Father, help us to understand this passage. Help us to understand the intent that you had in Jeremiah writing this passage. Help me to communicate it well. Open our eyes our spiritual eyes, to see your glory in it. Father, we recognize that our hearts are prone to wander. And so I pray right now that by your Spirit, you'd help us to focus on your word and it would change us. By your grace, we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so the context of this passage in Jeremiah chapter 17 is that Israel has become extremely rebellious. Jeremiah is warning them of the coming exile that they're going to experience because of the rebellion. And he's pointing out in this passage in particular, his point is that, look, your main problem is not your circumstance, it's actually your heart, what's inside of you. And so we pick up in verse 5. And we're reminded, this is not Nate's word. This is not even Jeremiah. He says, thus says the Lord. So we ought to come to this passage with some reverence. Thus says the Lord. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. This is what he's like. He's like a shrub in the desert. And shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness and in an uninhabited salt land. 
Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that seeds out of its roots or sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and it's not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. And then he moves on to talk about the heart. Look at verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. All right, this is an amazing metaphor, powerful metaphor. Let's break it down. Verse 5 and 6, they describe the ungodly person, the person that's trusting in man, the person that's trusting in themselves, who's turned away from the Lord. They're like a dried up thorny shrub in the desert. They're like my backyard right now, okay? It's a bunch of weeds, and I feel like if the wind would just blow, it would just turn all to dirt right now. We've had no rain forever. But that's the ungodly man, the person that's trusting in themselves, that's trusting in man. Then verse 7 and 8 describes the godly person who trusts in the Lord. They're like a tree planted by water. They don't fear the heat. They don't fear the drought. They always produce fruit. But notice that the godly person does not escape the heat. That's significant. And heat represents our fallen, our broken world. But the difference is that they're close to the water. And so they've put their roots in the water. And so that's the source. The water represents God who comforts us and redeems us and cleanses us and powers us. But only if you trust in him. And then verses 9 and 10 show us that God does not simply focus on our behavior. He focuses on our, our heart. He doesn't ignore our behavior, but his focus is on our heart because it's our heart that is at the root of what changes us. It's at the root of our behavior, our attitudes, central to change. And so I, we're gonna, I want to show you this diagram. Go ahead and put it up on the screen. And if you're taking notes... I would, and it's going to be a little bit difficult to read, so I'll try to point it out, what's going on here. But I would encourage you to draw this in your notes, memorize this diagram. It's super helpful. Okay, so we're going to start at the very top. The heat, this is your situation. This is your circumstance. This is the, the trials that you go through, and this is also the, the blessings that you go through because often the blessings that we go through are just as dangerous for us because we don't often respond to blessing very well either. And so heat is your situation. And then you've got these two trees on the left and the right. This is your response to your, the situation. And so the thorns on the right, that's, your, that's that bush that's in the desert, the dried up bush. This is my backyard right now, right? Okay, and so this is a, the ungodly responses to the heat, the circumstances in your life. The right hand describes the, the godly responses that produce fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, all of those things. But notice that the root cause of our responses to the heat, it's not the heat, it's our heart. It's what's inside of us. It's our heart that causes it. Now, circumstances may influence our response, so we don't want to just ignore the circumstances but they can never be an excuse of what ultimately causes us to behave the way that we do. And that, that's not natural for us, is it? 
Uh, when my kids get in trouble because they've been disobedient or because they've been mean to each other, I don't think I've ever had one of my kids say to me, Dad, you know what? The problem is it's, it's my heart. No, they're constantly, they're going, to blame, they're going to blame their sibling, they're going to blame their circumstance, they're not going to look to their heart. And if we're honest, even as adults, we don't change that much, do we? Uh, Jesus, he picks up on this same metaphor in Luke chapter 6, and he, he makes the, the point that it's our heart that's the issue. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor grapes picked from bramble bushes. And so he explains this metaphor. He describes this metaphor. But then he says this. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so our words are part of the fruit. It's part of our response to the heat. And then finally, I want to point out the third tree, the, the cross in the middle. Okay, and so this, this tree, it represents God and His grace. And it represents the, the water that we talked about in Jeremiah. It's the, the source of our, of our change. Uh, it, it's the, the cross that helps us to, empowers us to have a fruitful, godly response, no matter what the circumstances are. This is what causes the, produ- the, the fruit to be produced. It takes away fear and, and anger and all the, the negative responses that we have. All right, so this is the big picture, and this is what we're going to be breaking down over the next several weeks. Today, what I want to focus on, on is that heat portion, that, those circumstances, So let me ask you a question. When the heat is turned up, when God turns up the heat in your life, when bad things happen, when trials come into your life, how do you typically respond? I think if we're honest, often we respond with surprise. Like, how could this possibly happen? We may even question God. Why would you allow this to happen to me? But the reality is that we should never be surprised about suffering. Throughout Scripture, We see the promise that we live in a world that is broken and we should expect suffering in this fallen world. Both the ungodly and the godly suffer. Matthew 5.45, he makes, talking about God, he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Jesus often warned his disciples that they should expect persecution. Even Jesus experienced suffering himself, obviously, on the cross. Peter said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. So because suffering is normal, we need to have a deep and practical theology of suffering. And what we see throughout Scripture is the key to this deep practical theology is to recognize that suffering is actually a gift, that suffering is a blessing. We see that Everywhere in Scripture. James 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. So in other words, that's what matures you. You're lacking in nothing because uh, you're you're experiencing the suffering and you're responding in in the right way. 1 Peter 4, going back to that passage again. 
Peter says, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when, the glo- when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Uh, Jesus t- tells his disciples, Matthew 5, 11 and 12, blessed are those of you who are reviled, or blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. See, often we think of God's grace, and we think of the sacrifice that Jesus gave us on the cross. We think of God's grace, and we think of God comforting us. We think of God's grace, and we think of uh, just the, the, the gifts that he gives us that we don't deserve. But how often... When you think of God's grace, do you think of the trial that he's giving you? How often do you think of the trial that is coming in your life as God's grace? And so in Deuteronomy 8, and I want you to go ahead and turn there. So you're going to turn left in your Bible. It's the, back almost to the beginning. Uh, if you've got one of our Bibles, it's page 170. But in Deuteronomy 8... God is explaining to the Israelites that the suffering that they've experienced in the desert for the last 40 years is actually God's love and grace towards them. And so the context of this passage is they are, they're just about to go into the promised land, okay? And so the Jordan River's right there, and God is preparing them to go into the promised land. And he says this, starting in verse 2, Deuteronomy chapter 8. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And so he, he makes it clear from the very beginning. I haven't left you. I haven't been absent. I've been leading you the past 40 years. As hard as it's been in the wilderness, I've been there along with you. I've led you the past 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let, your hunger, let you hunger and fed you with manna. And so he allowed the hunger to happen. He let you hunger. He let you feel pain. But then he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But, by, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land a land of brooks of water, of fountains and springs flowing out into the valley and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land of which, in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. 
And then he goes on, he says this warning. So in light of all the blessings that you are about to receive by going into the promised land, look at verse 11. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I commanded you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. In other words, your heart be made prideful and you forget the Lord your God who's brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Do you see the purpose of the wilderness here? Do you see the the purpose of their 40 years of trials? 40 years they were in the wilderness struggling to survive. It took them 40 years of suffering for them to be prepared to go into the promised land and experience what they were going to experience in the promised land. They had to go through the wilderness first. And so we learn in this passage that the wilderness was not a sign of like Moses being a bad leader. Okay, you remember that the, the Israelites, they complained like crazy while they were in the wilderness. In fact, they wanted to leave Moses. They said, okay, you're terrible. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt, Egypt and be in slavery than be here with you, Moses. But them being in the wilderness was not a sign of a, a lack of leadership with Moses. It wasn't a sign of God's forgetfulness. He hadn't forgotten them. He hadn't stopped caring for them. You see in this passage, God's purpose for testing them in the wilderness, there was at least three purposes that we're going to look at today. We're going to look at these three. Number one, he was teaching them. Number two, if you're taking notes, he was humbling them. And number three, he was disciplining them. And so number one, what was he teaching them? God was teaching them to trust him. Every single day, God rained manna down from heaven. Every single day was a reminder of God's provision. But even more important than that was God was teaching them to trust his word. The text says that they were learning that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Maybe you remember Jesus said those same, same words as he was being tempted And he spent 40 days in the wilderness, hadn't eaten, he's hungry. Satan comes and tempts him to turn a rock into bread. And Jesus quotes this passage. And so how did God teach them this in the wilderness? Well, remember, when God provided the manna, he he had very strict rules. He said, you can only pick up enough manna for what you needed for today. Not for tomorrow, but for the only exception was on the sixth day of the week, The day before the Sabbath, they were allowed to pick up twice as much so that they didn't have to gather manna on the Sabbath. They could rest on the Sabbath day. But every single day, they had to have the faith to believe that God was going to give them manna tomorrow. You remember how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? He said, when you pray, ask God to give you your daily bread. Okay, not, not tomorrow's bread, but give us today our daily bread. He expects us to rely on God every single 
day. And so day after that day, they had to trust God that tomorrow he would again send enough manna so they could live another day. Often our trials create this uncertainty, right? Often that is the trial. It's the uncertainty of the future. You lose your job, and you, you don't know how you're going to pay your bills tomorrow. Your, your child gets sick or gets injured, and you, you don't know how it's going to turn out for them in the future. You're, the boss that you love gets promoted, and you don't know who's going to replace them, if, if you're going to like them or they're going to like you. Uh, your daughter gets their driver's license, right? And you don't know whether or not they're going to come home safe. You're fostering a child, and you don't know whether or not the state is going to take that child away from you. But it's, it's in those uncertain moments that God proves his faithfulness to us. He teaches us to trust him that he will provide. Maybe not in the way that we thought he would, maybe not in the way that we wish that he would, but he always provides what we need most in the midst of those trials. And it's often in those uncertainties, those times of uncertainties, that God loves to show off. Think about the heroes of the Bible. Every one of them faced some kind of uncertainty in their life. Abraham, when he was told to go sacrifice your only son, the son of the promise, Okay, he wasn't certain how that was going to turn out, but he trusted in the character of God, and so he was obedient. Joseph, he didn't know how things would turn out when he was sold into slavery by his brothers, but over the, uh, the text says over and over that God was with him, and he trusted God, and he was obedient to God, and God was faithful to him. Same thing, Daniel, when he was taken into exile, he didn't know how things would turn out to him, but he trusted in the character of God, and so he obeyed no matter what the consequences were, and God was faithful to him. I know when we moved from Ohio down to Kentucky, we didn't know how things would turn out. There's a whole lot of uncertainty for us. We, we moved away from family so that I could go to seminary. And Cameron was seven months pregnant at the time. In a million years, I could not have guessed that we'd still be down here 17 years later with six kids and pastoring a, a church plant. And it hasn't been easy that whole time. There's been a whole lot of uncertainty, but it's through those uncertainties that over and over and over, God has shown us his faithfulness. He hasn't brought us this far just to drop us. And I know that in this room right now, some of you are facing uncertainty. And I would encourage you that in this moment, as you're facing that trial, Run to God. And if you're in this room right now, you're already doing that. Run to God, not away from him, and he will prove his faithfulness to you. Now, not only was God teaching the Israelites to trust him in this moment in the wilderness, he was also humbling them during that time in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they had no choice other than to fully rely on God every single day. In fact, text says that God intentionally allowed them to experience hunger, intentionally allowed them to experience that pain. And in that moment, there was no opportunity for their pride to grow in the desert. They had to survive. They had to depend on God. Remember in the New Testament, Paul spoke of this thorn in his side. And we don't exactly know what the thorn was exactly, but we know the purpose of the thorn. 2 Corinthians 12, 
verses 6 and 7, Paul says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me. And so pain was given to me. Suffering was given to me as a gift. Why? And he even calls it a messenger of Satan to harass me. Why? To keep me from becoming conceited. And so God uses our trials to humble us, to keep us humble. If pride is competing with God for supremacy, I love that definition. I think that's C.J. Mahaney said that in his book on humility. So pride is competing with God for supremacy. That means humility must mean recognizing and surrendering to God's supremacy. And so trials, what they do is they remind us, I am not God. We are not God. We need God. We desperately need God. And so trials, God uses them to humble us. Um, Raising children, right, is both wonderful and challenging and humbling. It's a joy to watch them grow, and it's humbling to see yourself in your kids, right? Because you see their bad attitudes and their bad behaviors, and often it's a reflection of yourself. It's humbling. But God uses that to build character. In the wilderness, God allows us to feel pain and suffering and hunger because he's lovingly humbling us and causing us to lean on him even more. And then finally, God was lovingly disciplining the Israelites in in the desert. So one, he was teaching them to trust him. Two, he was humbling them. And number three, God was lovingly disciplining the Israelites in the desert. Remember, the whole reason they were in the desert for 40 years is because they went up, originally, they went up to the the edge of the promised land. They sent in 12 spies. 10 of the 12 spies come back and say, nope, we can't go. The people are too big. They're too powerful. There is no way they will destroy us. And so they did not trust that God would be with them in the promised land. And so because of that, as a consequence, God disciplines them and for 40 years teaches them to trust him. For 40 years, they needed 40 years to learn that lesson. So then when they went back to the edge of the promised land, they wouldn't make the same mistake again. God lovingly disciplines us through our trials. When I, when I was growing up, I wasn't terribly rebellious, but I, there were definitely times where I got busted doing the wrong thing. I remember one of, the, one of the first times I got busted for doing the wrong thing, I think I must have been like six or seven years old, I'd gone in the bathroom, I'd locked the door, and I started going through the medicine cabinet looking for anything that smelled funny or strange, like perfume and, and uh, shaving solution, just whatever I could find because I wanted to make this, this magical potion like I saw on the Smurfs cartoon that Gargamel would make these magical potions, right? And so I wanted to do this. And so I, I made this magical potion. Of course, my parents knock on the door. It's locked, and I, I know I'm busted at this point. So eventually I, I open up the door. They figure out what I did, and they made me pay for what I had wasted. They, they made me work chores to pay off what I had wasted. I'm so thankful that they caught me, though. I'm so thankful that they loving, had enough love for me that they didn't just let it go. They disciplined me in that moment. And they taught me a valuable lesson about what's right or wrong. I often tell my kids when they get caught, I am so thankful that you got caught because God is teaching you in this moment. Even even in the difficulties of the consequences that come from the things that we do that are wrong, God uses that to teach us and to discipline us. 
And so God uses the wilderness to prepare us. He was preparing the Israelites for the spiritual obstacles that they would be facing, both the suffering and the blessings that they would have in the promised land. He wanted to make sure that they did not forget him when they had plenty. He wanted them also to see the propensity of their own hearts to drift away from trusting and obeying God. And so when God turns up the heat in your own life, I would encourage you to remember that it's God's grace. As difficult and as uncomfortable as it is, God is using that to change you. It's his proof that he's not just going to let you go, that he loves you and he is dedicated to changing you into the image of Christ. And so let's pray that God would help us to remember that in the midst of the trials that we go through. Father, we do recognize that often our, our hearts wander from you, both in good times and in bad. And so I pray that over the next several weeks as we study your word, that you would, one, remind us that in the midst of the, the trials of our lives, that you would, that you are loving us, that that is grace. No matter how difficult the trial is, we know that you've gone through a greater trial. And so I pray that you would help us rejoice in the midst of the trial, knowing that you are teaching us, that you are humbling us, and perhaps you're even disciplining us. And we need that, Lord. Help us to embrace the trials. In Jesus' name, amen.